Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning we will be considering our third and last time, the passage of the Lord's uh, Supper, where it's instituted, the Last Supper, and that is in Matthew chapter 26, verses 19 through 28. These are the words of God. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, You have said it. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Heavenly Father, one of the features that we see that is a sad feature in the Christian life is we see people who turn away. And you present that issue to us right here in this text. And we pray that now you would guide us by the Holy Spirit, that we would know how to think about this biblically to your glory. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been looking at the issue that's squarely presented to us in this text with Judas's betrayal of the Lord Jesus. And it is a betrayal that involves an apostasy from the faith, which results in eternal damnation. As Jesus points out in his chilling words, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Now, apostasy comes from the Greek word apostasia, and it's a combination of two words. Stasia means stand, and apo means against or away from. Thus, apostasy means to stand against or away from something you previously were standing with and for. And that certainly was the case with Judas who went from being a follower of Jesus, one of his 12 special hand-picked followers, and the treasurer, a position of trust, to being the one who would betray Jesus to his enemies, directly resulting in his crucifixion. Now, Jesus, who knew Judas was planning to betray him, could have just let the scenario play out. He didn't have to bring it up, and he certainly didn't have to bring it up here at the Last Supper, but he did, and he made quite a point of it. It was something Jesus wanted his disciples to contemplate, both then and afterwards, certainly, when they were establishing the church, as we read about in the book of Acts. It is something Jesus wants us to think about as well. Now, in the previous two weeks, we have looked at the theme that cuts across this theme of apostasy, and that is the sovereignty of God which Jesus points out in his phrase in verse 24, the Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him. 
the scriptures say the Son of Man will be betrayed. He will be betrayed by one who dips in the dish with him, one of his brothers, one of those who eats with him, an intimate friend. The sovereignty of God cuts in and through, behind, over, and around all of this, even as it does every other truth in the Bible. And we looked at the sovereignty of God over events. We looked at the sovereignty of God, of how it interacts uh, and runs through and over and with all of the different characters who are involved in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the high priests and Judas and the people of Israel and the Gentiles and Pilate and Herod, all of these people making their own decisions for their own reasons. And yet, as Peter tells us in Acts, they all did what God's purpose determined beforehand would occur. And so we saw that when it comes to the events of life, God's sovereignty does not take away our freedom. It's God's sovereignty that establishes our freedom. Now, that's a paradox. That doesn't make sense to us. But all you have to do is look at the alternative. All you have to do is go and imagine a truly materialistic universe, which is what our modern man wants to conceive of. To make modern man independent of God, to make modern man free, modern man wants to get God away, get him gone, create a universe that has no God. It's just atoms in motion. Well, there is... There is no more sure recipe for an absolute, necessary, pure determinism than that. Because if everything's atom in motion, then friends, everything is atoms in motion. And that's all there is. That's pure, raw determinism. And so it's because the personal God who has created us is sovereign over all things. That is what ironically establishes our freedom. That is what enables us to make our own choices for our own reasons and yet we have to understand, as mysterious as it is, all things are according to what God has determined before to be done. That's the way it works. Scripture doesn't explain how that works. We couldn't understand how that works if it did explain it. But it does tell us from beginning to end that it works. And it shows us illustration after illustration of how it works, assuring us all the while God is not only sovereign, he is also the God of love and mercy. So, Jesus brings us up and he wants the, the disciples to think about it. We also looked at the sovereignty of God, not only about events in, in general, but we looked at the sovereignty of God with regard to personal salvation. And there again, we saw that there is a uh, paradox involved. The sovereignty of God does not take away salvation. The sovereignty of God does not keep people away from Christ. We saw that the truth is, apart from the sovereignty of God and salvation, no one gets saved. As Jesus said, unless the Father draws you, you can't come. Not because somebody's preventing you, but because you're preventing yourself. That's the way it works. So we have the background of the sovereignty of God, and then today we want to look more directly at this phenomenon of apostasy. What does the Bible teach us about apostasy? Number one, the Bible teaches us that apostasy happens. Apostasy happens. It is a constant feature of life among a fallen people. Adam and Eve apostatized in the Garden of Eden. In response to Satan's temptations, they took a stand away from and against the God who made them and loved them. And we see then in the very next generation, the pattern continues. Cain apostatizes and murders Abel. And we see the strength 
of the heart of apostasy. Because you know, Cain is not like some pagan living out there in ignorance. He's the first son, the firstborn son of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve who believe and who are living in light of the promise that God would raise up a seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. They live in light of that promise. Cain has been raised in light of that promise. And now we see Cain is coming to worship God. He's coming to present a gift to God. And so does his brother Abel. And God rejects Cain and his gift. So Cain becomes disappointed, becomes bitter, he becomes angry. He's angry at God, really, not at Abel, but he can't do anything about God. He can't kill God. He'll have to do the next best thing and kill the one who reminds him of God. And that is Abel. And Cain is not relying on some human flawed pastor to try to counsel him through this situation. God himself personally is speaking to Cain. God himself is saying, Cain, you need to see what's going on here in your anger and your bitterness. Sin is crouching at the door. It's trying to consume you. It's trying to consume you. You better get your heart right. If you do well, will you not be accepted? You need to get your heart right. That's God saying that to Cain. It doesn't matter. Cain apostatizes and murders Abel. The whole pre-flood world apostatized with the exception of Noah and his family. But then after the flood, Ham, one of Noah's own sons, apostatizes. Post-flood, humanity was collectively apostatizing at the Tower of Babel until God confused the languages and split them all up. After Moses brings Israel out in the Exodus, Korah, who was one of the Levites, along with Dathan and Abiram and 250 leaders of the people apostatized and were bringing about insurrection until God destroyed them. It's in number 16. After Joshua brought Israel into the land, the next generation apostatized, forgetting the Lord and turning to false God very quickly. All of the prophets in Scripture, all of them, are dealing with apostasy or the danger of apostasy in God's people. And apostasy is not just an Old Testament phenomenon. We see in our text, even in the ministry of Jesus, the Son of God, his ministry is not immune from the problem of apostasy. In John chapter 6, we're told that many of those who had been following him, he's got throngs following him at this time. Things are great. The 12 are thinking, this is great, man. This is happening. People are coming to Jesus. He's the Messiah. We're going to march to Jerusalem. He's going to be embraced. He is the king. But in John chapter 6, Jesus lays down some hard teaching. He lays down some hard teaching about the Lord's Supper. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. He also says to them, no one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draw him. He's speaking. These are covenant people. These are not pagan. These are the people in the, in the pews. These are the people in the synagogues. And he says to them, you, yes, you have to have a change of heart. God has to do a work in your heart. It's not enough to come be in the church. Cora Tim Boone used to have a, a great saying. She used to say that being in a garage doesn't make you a car. And being in the church doesn't make you a child of God. And so Jesus is essentially saying the same thing. This was offensive. We're told that many of those who had been following him turned and walked away. Even among Jesus' hand, 12 hand-picked disciples, designated to be the apostles, one is going to apostatize, one is going to cooperate in his arrest and help along the plan to crucify him. In John chapter 17... In, in Jesus' prayer to the Father, 
speaking as a human pastor, Jesus says that of the ones the Father had given them him, that he had watched over them, and he had only lost one, the son of perdition. That the scripture might be fulfilled. God's sovereignty is still all around, over, in, and through all of this. Jesus is not speaking as God the Son in terms of God's sovereignty saying, I tried my best, but I lost. He's speaking as a human pastor. As a human pastor, he says, one of the ones you gave to me, I lost. God is sovereign. His will is not frustrated. But one of the twelve was lost. Now, if that's true of Jesus' ministry... How much more do you think it's going to be true of ours? Do you think our ministry will be immune from this phenomenon of people turning away? As Jesus said in John 13, 16, the servant is not greater than his master. Jesus tells us in Matthew 13 that his kingdom is going to spread through the world like leaven through bread dough. It's going to go everywhere and it's going to transform everything and it's good because it's going to make everything alive and it's going to cause everything to rise up. That's what leaven does. And he tells them that it's going to be like a mustard seed that starts so small and insignificant that you can hardly see it, but it's going to grow to be the greatest tree. And everything is going to gather under its shade. Nevertheless, apostasy will be a constant feature until Christ returns. Jesus also says that the progress of the kingdom at ground level is going to look like a sower sowing seed. Some of the seed gets eaten by birds, doesn't sprout at all. Some sprouts quickly, but also dies quickly because it falls on shallow, rocky soil. It doesn't have any root, can't take the heat of the day. Some sprouts and lives longer term, but ultimately gets choked out by thorns and thistles. And amidst all of that, some make it all the way to maturity and real fruitfulness. Jesus says the seed on rocky ground is those who respond quickly and with joy to the word, but they quickly fall away when hardship, difficulty, or persecution arises. The seed in the weed-infested soil is those who respond to the word on a longer-term basis, but ultimately, worldly values and perspectives and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke the word out. So we have two different perspectives that Jesus offers us on the progress of the kingdom. He gives us a perspective from 50,000 feet up in fast-forward mode. That's leaven working through bread dough, transforming everything. That's mustard seed growing to be the greatest tree. But Jesus also gives us the perspective at the ground level in real time. That seed being scattered. Some lives, some dies, some dies quickly, some lasts longer and then dies. The picture from 50,000 feet up in fast-forward mode is clean and is glorious and everything's clear. But the view from ground level in real time is not clean. It is not clear. It is messy. So apostasy is something the church is going to have to contend with until Christ returns on the last day. And we need to realize that apostasy is not always as dramatic as Cain's apostasy or Judas's apostasy. 
It doesn't always involve outright denial, outright betrayal, helping the enemy, bringing about a murder. Many times, apostasy simply involves quietly slipping away, quietly slipping away from the path, quietly ceasing to walk with Christ anymore, quietly ceasing to come to church anymore, ceasing to seek fellowship with other Christians, ceasing to find joy in the Word of God or pleasing Christ or fellowshipping with Christians, ceasing to find pleasure in reading the Bible or praying to God or seeking to honor Him in one's life. But whatever form apostasy takes, apostasy happens. The second thing we need to see is that apostasy is a bummer. Apostasy is extremely upsetting and unsettling. Look at the effect in our text on the disciples when Jesus tells them that one of them is going to betray him. It says in verse 22, they were exceedingly sorrowful. You see, which is something that tells us that Jesus wanted them to think about this. He wants us to think about this. He had to know this is the effect it's going to produce. Why bring it up now, Jesus? They can't do anything about it. Why bring it up at this time? and create this kind of sorrow in their hearts. It shakes them up. They start wondering if they even know their own hearts. They all start asking Jesus, Lord, is it I? That's what apostasy does to us. The girl who led me to Christ walked away from the faith. What am I supposed to do with that? The girl that God used to bring me to Christ walked away from the faith a few years later. You don't think that's not unsettling? You don't think that's a bummer? You can see the, the disciples here, they start wondering if they can count on anything. Is anything certain? Is anything sure? Well, the answer is yes. And that brings us to the next thing we need to see about apostasy. The sure foundation of God stands firm. The sure foundation of God stands firm. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy about some apostasy that's coming and some that has already occurred. He says there are some false teachers, there's apostasy that's already occurred, because they're saying that the resurrection has already taken place. That's what they were saying 2,000 years ago. The resurrection's already taken place. And Paul warns Timothy that this false message is going to spread like cancer. That's what he says. This is going to spread like cancer and overthrow the faith of some. This is not done, Timothy. This is already a bummer, but it's going to get worse. This thing is going to spread. And there are people who are going to walk away from the faith. But then Paul quickly reminds Timothy that no matter what happens, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal, the Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. No matter what happens, Timothy, no matter how messy, no matter how crazy things may get, the foundation of God remains unshakable. It has two great truths, two great pillars that support it. Number one, the Lord knows those who are His. Number two, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. So let's look at these. The first thing we need to see about this sure foundation is that the sure foundation is not our hearts. 
The sure foundation is not our hearts. Remember what the disciples say here. Lord, is it I? They've been with Jesus long enough now to know how many things he says that don't make sense, but they turn out to be true. They've, they've been with him so long now that they've learned not to trust their own hearts, for the most part, because they've seen themselves stumble a time and time again. Lord, is it I? That means each one of them considered it possible. Regardless of what they felt at the moment, they considered it possible that they could do it. That didn't mean that they felt any disloyalty toward Jesus or felt their faith waning. They were coming to understand the capacity of their own fallen hearts. That's what that means. And this is what it means for us. This is what we need to remember. There is no sin of which we are not personally capable. There is no sin of which we are not personally capable. You say, well, I could never do that. I'm never even tempted to do that. Let God take his hand away from you. Let God let Satan have at you. Let your circumstances change for a while. And there is no sin that you or I wouldn't do under the right circumstances. So the seal, the great foundation of God, is not our hearts, for there is no sin, including apostasy, of which we are not capable. Well, what then is the sure foundation of God? Number one, the Lord knows those who are His. In other words, God is sovereign over all things. He will save His people. And he orchestrates every detail of history. All the free decisions of free people made for their own reasons is orchestrated by God so that every detail works to the good of his people. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. God has called them to Jesus. For whom God foreknew, those whom he knew before the foundation of the world and set his Intimate love on, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, these he also called. And those whom he called, these he also justified. And those whom he justified, these he also glorified. Or as Jesus said in John 10, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So the Lord infallibly knows and preserves those who are His. But there's another part of this. We don't. We don't. Paul does not say the Lord infallibly knows those who are His, and so do we. Part of his point is, we don't. As Moses said in Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. God reveals to us that he is sovereign over all things, that he cannot be thwarted in his saving purposes, and that he works all things for good. But he does not reveal the specifics of his sovereign workings to us. The specifics are secret things which belong to the Lord our God. But God does reveal to us his covenant promises of love and faithfulness, and he calls us to respond to him in love and faithfulness. 
And that is the second part of the seal on God's sure foundation. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Do you name the name of Christ? Do you believe in Jesus, the Son of God, born of a virgin, crucified for our sin, risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, to whom all authority has been given and to whom all judgment has been committed? Do you believe in this Jesus? Then live like it. Walk with him. He's loved you. Love him back. That doesn't mean a perfect life. It does not mean a perfect life. Perfection is not even an option. We're not talking about that. What does it mean to walk with Jesus and be faithful and to love him? It means to have a fundamental attitude in life and a habit of life of turning to him no matter what the circumstance. What is repentance? Turning away from the, the way you have been walking, turning to God. Turning to God, always to him, always to him. Always recalibrating your compass and turning to him. It means having a fundamental attitude and an increasingly cultivated habit of trusting in the Lord with all your heart, of not being wise in your own eyes, of not leaning on your own understanding, of trusting his word, of committing your life and happiness and fulfillment and well-being to him. It's not a matter of perfection. We all fall, but when we fall, we go, you know what? <laughs> I was just leaning on my own understanding. That's what I did. I leaned on my own understanding. I was wise on my own eyes, and look what happened. And so what do we do? We confess it. Because if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive them, right? And if we act like we've got it all together and we don't have any sin, now we're lying. We're lying to God, we're lying to ourselves, and we're lying to everybody else. It's not about that. It means more and more and more we cultivate this attitude of turning to Christ, trusting in him, not leaning on our own understanding, understanding he knows more about our happiness than we do, he cares more about our happiness than we do. And this is not talking about works. This is talking about loving back the one who first loved you and the one who gave himself for you while you were still an enemy and gave himself to you to draw you to him. Always remember this. It is never works to love back the one who first loved you. It is never works to love back the one who first loved you. It has nothing to do with earning your salvation. That's love. That's not works. If you have a husband or a wife who wants to respond in love to the love they have received from their spouse, would you accuse them of trying to earn their marriage? No. You would accuse them of being a good husband or a wife. That's what you're supposed to do. Love back. And that is what Paul is saying that we are to do with Christ. Turn away from iniquity. Do you name the name of Christ? Turn away from iniquity. Turn unto Christ all the time through life. Well, let me close in some application by giving us some pitfalls to avoid with regard to this entire subject. Number one, first pitfall, becoming obsessed with the sovereignty of God. Becoming obsessed with the sovereignty of God. What would you think of a husband or a wife who sits around wondering if they're really a husband or a wife? Or wondering whether God has ordained that they will remain faithful 
or not? Your response to them would be, what are you talking about? You are married. I was there. It's a ring on your finger. Love your spouse. Do you bear the mark of baptism? Have you been baptized in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit? Then you bear Christ's mark upon you. You bear his name upon you. It is fundamentally his sign, not ours. It's his testimony, not ours. You're joined to him objectively. You're part of his bride, the church. He loves you. He has proven that fact. Love him back. Paul talks about those who look at God's sovereignty from the wrong end of the glass. And unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians who do this. In Romans 3, Paul talks about those who go, well, if my unrighteousness, whatever I do, if I sin, you know, it's all in the sovereignty of God, and my unrighteousness just simply demonstrates and showcases the righteousness of God, then how can God judge me? I mean, if the truth of God increases and prospers through my lie, then why am I judged as a sinner? And why not just do evil that good may come? Because God's sovereign, right? Paul deals with that in one phrase. Their condemnation is just. It's sovereignty from the wrong end of the glass. God's sovereignty is intended to be precious to us, to comfort us, and to assure us. It is not intended to confuse us, to make us look cross-eyed like we're trying to stare back into our heads and off into eternity. And it's certainly not intended to give us license. Second pitfall is trying to deal with others based on God's divine knowledge. Trying to deal with others, or even ourselves, based on God's secret divine knowledge. Now, imagine a husband or a wife. Again, why do I keep coming back to this? The reason why I keep coming back to marriage is because Paul, in Ephesians 5, as Chris read to us this morning, says that from the beginning, God designed marriage to be an an image, a reflection, and a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. And remember, uh, the church is what the human race was created to be, the bride of Christ, okay? So that's the picture. It's a living picture of the relationship. That's why I keep using it. So imagine a husband or wife who is flaking out on their marriage. They're not showing at all the kind of heart that they're supposed to have. And so you're really getting concerned. Now, would you look at the ring on their finger and say, oh, look, they're married, everything's fine? Would you go down to the courthouse and look up the marriage license and go, oh, here it is, (laughs) everything's fine? No, of course not. It's not their marriage status that you're concerned about. You, You want to see the fruit indicating that the heart of marriage is there. That's what you're concerned about. All right, let's take the same scenario. Husband or wife is flaking out on their marriage. Would you go to them and say, I just don't think you're really a husband. I just don't think you're really a wife. I don't really think you're married. Of course not. You wouldn't do that. You'd do the opposite. You would remind them of the fact that they are married, and you would say, you need to start acting like it. Of course, which means a change of heart. So those two approaches are ones we would never, ever take in trying to help a married couple. But here's the thing. 
We take those approaches all the time with Christians whose union with Christ is the reality of which marriage is the picture. When a Christian starts flaking out, what's the first thing we do? And I've witnessed this, I've witnessed it among pastors and elders and Christians. When Christians starts flaking out, the first thing we tend to do is what? Are they really born again or not? That's what we want to know. Are they really born again or not? And a lot of times we spend a lot more time discussing and debating that than we do actually trying to help them because we're stuck. Are they really born again or not? Well, if we conclude they are, then we tend to do what? Everything's fine. Everything's fine. They're born again. There's the ring on their finger. They're married. Everything's fine. That's not helpful to them. That's not helpful to the church. Or if we conclude that they are not really born again, then we interject doubt into the equation and we tell them, we don't think they're born again. Or we're not sure if they're born again. Now, if they are a weak and struggling Christian, we just made them a lot weaker. If they're a hardened and rebellious soul, we just told them exactly what they want to hear. They're not a Christian after all. (laughs) Wait. Well, yeah, what does the really rebellious, hardened husband want to hear? You know, I don't really think you're married. (laughs) Yes. No, that's not what we would do. What we want to do is affirm the objective covenant union with Christ and to call them to live up to it, to call them to respond to Christ's love by loving him back. And what is true for others is also true for ourselves. And here I want to point out a very misunderstood verse. It's in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be diligent to make your call and election sure. That's what Peter says. Therefore, brethren, be diligent to make your call and election sure. Now, the way we typically take that verse is to think that Peter is calling upon us to gain a cognitive certainty regarding the eternal creeds of God about ourself, okay? So we think he's calling upon us essentially to tap in to the divine knowledge. But here's the thing. The Greek word translated sure, make your calling and election sure, is a word that has nothing to do with cognitive certainty. It is a word that means steadfast, firm, or reliable. It's a word that's used like of a boat anchor. If we're on a boat and you tell the first mate, make the anchor line sure. You're not telling him to become cognitively certain over whether there's an anchor line or not. You're telling him to make sure it's tight, it's strong, it's secure, it's tied. It's not going to give way, it's going to hold. That's the word that Peter uses here. And so what Peter, Peter here is using the word election not in the eternal decree sense, okay? He's using it in the covenantal sense of being objectively joined covenantally to Jesus, who is the elect one, the Son of God. And always keep this in mind. Sometimes you have words that are used different ways. Sometimes they're used different ways in Scripture. Sometimes they're also used in different ways in Scripture or in theology. 
when the word election is used in theology, in big fact theology books, it, it's virtually always talking about the sovereignty of God and his eternal purposes to save and so forth. But sometimes in scripture, as we see here, Peter is not using it in that sense. He's using it in the covenantal sense. And so Peter is saying to these Christians, look, you have the status of being united and joined to Christ objectively and covenantally, just like a husband and wife are objectively and covenantally joined when they go through the wedding ceremony, in spite of whatever they feel in their hearts. A few years ago, Britney Spears and a guy she knew from high school got married in Las Vegas. And then within 48 hours, they were saying, I'm just kidding. We weren't serious, it was just a gag. Las Vegas, Las Vegas, said, oh no, you were married. If you want to not be married, you're going to have to legally do something about it. That's even Las Vegas. Even Las Vegas gets that. Okay? So, Peter is saying, you have this union with Christ. And Christ has shown you his love for you. And he's saying, build on this. Build on that union. It's like telling a married couple to make their marriage strong. Make your marriage strong. Make your marriage sure. What does that mean? Look at your ring. Get two rings. Three. Go down to the courthouse and get the license out so you can see the original. No, that's not what make your marriage sure and strong means. What make your marriage sure and strong means live like it. Live it out. Love, be faithful, give yourself to your spouse, sacrifice. That's what it means. It doesn't mean become extra sure of the fact that you're married. That's taken for granted. So the examples that Peter gives of the things to do to make your call and election secure and strong and stable is, he says, add to your faith. Now again, we immediately go, what do you, what do you mean, add to faith? What do you mean, Peter? Add to faith. We know you're saved by faith alone, Peter. No, he's saying, yeah, but faith is something you build on. Faith is something you build on. He says, like, faith is like a jewel. And what you want to do in the Christian life is, yeah, there's only one thing there. You can't replace that. That's, God gives that. What you want to do, though, is to build a setting, a beautiful setting that displays that jewel. And so he says, build on it, add, on, add to it. And what does he say to add to it? He says, add virtue, add knowledge, add self-control, add perseverance, add go godliness, add brotherly kindness, and add Christian love. He says, that's the way you build on it. That's the way you make an ornament around it to display it. And he says, that's the way you make your calling, your covenantal status, the objective fact that you're joined to Christ. That's how you make it strong and secure and firm. It's the same way in a marriage. It's the same thing. And then Peter says this, if these things are yours, then you will be neither barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in this way, an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter here is really doing exactly what we would do by common sense with any married couple. He begins by affirming the objective status that they enjoy by virtue of their union. And he tells them everything that Christ has done for them. And then he says, man, you have this jewel. 
It's objectively a blessing, just like marriage is objectively a blessing. It's not intended to bring heartache and curse and judgment. It's intended to bring blessing. That's what a marriage is intended to do. But you can trash it. You can turn it around. You can turn it into a curse. You can take those precious marriage vows that are intended to bless you and turn them around so that they condemn you and curse you. Why? Because you're unfaithful. That's why. So he says, don't do that. Third pitfall to avoid. Third pitfall to avoid is discouragement. Watch out for discouragement. As we go through the Christian life, God throws us many curveballs. Road is not all straight. There's curves in it, and ups and downs. Many things go differently or turn out differently than we expected or hoped. Yes, any of you who have been a Christian for any length of time know this to be true. God seems to get the story wrong. You see, we, we talk about the story a lot. That's why God keeps telling us the story. We know the pattern of the story, death and resurrection. Dreams and hopes crushed. And then God resurrects them and brings them back. We read all the stories. And then when it comes to our life, we go, oh, yeah, I see. I'm in the story. I know what God's doing. I know how the story goes. And then it doesn't turn out that way. There's a difference between knowing how the story goes and trying to write the story for God and telling him exactly where you are. Our temptation is to think God is getting the story wrong when it comes to me. And our temptation is to conclude that Christ has let us down. This almost certainly played a role in Judas's apostasy, okay? As well as in the large apostasy among Jewish Christians in the 60s AD as the Jewish-Roman War was approaching. And Jesus predicted that. He said, many are going to turn away, Matthew 24. They're going to turn away. You're going to have Christians turning against one another. You're going to have them ratting out one another and giving up one another and betraying one another. All of this is going to happen. And it almost certainly played a role of Judas seeing, you know, they come into Jerusalem and all the people are there going, Hosanna to the Lord and so forth. This is great. Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to be crowned king. There's a new regime coming in. And it's going to be great. Romans are going to be put down. We're going to be on top. I'm one of the 12. I'm the treasurer. I'm going to have a high place. And Jesus keeps talking about that he's going to get killed. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to go to the cross. He keeps saying he's going to be resurrected. They believed in the resurrection, but they believed in the resurrection of the righteous at the end. The idea of somebody being resurrected in the middle of history, it didn't make any sense. Jesus keeps telling them that. It makes no sense to them. And so to Judas... One more time now at the Last Supper, Jesus is saying he's going to be betrayed. He keeps on this theme. He keeps saying it. And it, it seems like, our, I mean, our best understanding of what's really going on with Judas is that Jesus is just trading it all away. He's giving it all away. And, and Judas knows what happens when Messiahs, would-be Messiahs, get crucified by the Romans. So do their followers. The ones who are in the tight-knit little group, they're running for their lives at that point. He knows, he's seen how this thing ends. And so ultimately he doesn't trust. He is disappointed, becomes embittered. This leads to his apostasy. And that's certainly what happened in the 60s AD. All these Jewish uh, Christians 
are, are, are trusting in Christ and he has said he has all power and authority over all nations. He's going to bring all nations to be his disciples. They're on the winning team, not the losing team. Christless Judaism is going to be judged. Jerusalem's going to fall. The temple's going to fall. And now, almost 40 long years later, the Christians are taking it in the teeth. They're being persecuted. They've lost their jobs. They've lost their homes. They've lost their friends. They've lost their families. And meanwhile, Christless Judaism, the temple is finally being completed. It's glorious. They're, everything's going great for them. And they become disappointed because Jesus got the story wrong. In truth, God never lets us down. God never lets us down. In truth, our expectations are disappointed, but God never disappoints. Our expectations are disappointed often, but God never disappoints. Our expectations are disappointed because they differ from the will of God. They differ from what is best for us often. They often differ from the good that God intends for us. And we do not have the perspective to judge God. Abraham said in Genesis, Shall not the God of all the earth do right? Yes, he shall. But remember that doing right is not the same thing as our idea of doing right. When we read the pages of Scripture, we get to see some of history from the perspective of the throne room of God. And how often do the characters of Scripture have the perspective to judge what is happening to them or the God who is orchestrating it? How often are the characters of Scripture tempted to be disappointed and to conclude that God isn't making good on His promises? How many times are the characters of Scripture right in thinking this way? Never. As you read the scriptures, what do you find yourself wishing for the characters? What do you find yourself wishing for Joseph as he is sitting in prison? What do you find yourself wishing for all of these characters? You find yourself, whether you verbalize the words or not, in your heart you find yourself thinking, don't give up. Keep on trusting. God is faithful. God knows what he's doing. God intends to bless you. Stir up your faith. Be noble. Rise above your circumstances. Be heroic. There are lots of people here, up in heaven, who know what you're going through. What, is, what does it say in Hebrews? We have so great a cloud of witnesses watching us, of both men and angels. We're all rooting for you. That's what you're saying in your heart to these characters. How much more then is it true for us? What should we say to ourselves? The same thing we find ourselves saying to them as we read the scriptures. It says in Romans 9.33, quoting Isaiah, Whoever believes in Christ will not be disappointed. But notice the first part of it. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a stumbling stone, and a rock of offense. But whoever believes on him will not be disappointed. No one who believes in Christ will be disappointed. So keep trusting in Christ. I promise you, in the end, you will not be disappointed. Everything will be made clear. It will all make sense down to every detail. It will all be good. And it will all end in laughter. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.